Hello, this is Senator Katie Fry Hester, and you are listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and your best source for Maryland politics and policy. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, breaking news. Today on the podcast, we record on Wednesday, October 12th. By the time our listeners hear this, it'll be Friday. But the good news is we today adopted our 2023 legislative initiatives with our legislative initiative subcommittee and the MAKO Legislative Committee. Uh, Michael, we're going to get into some of these in the weeks ahead, but we do want to do a quick walkthrough today just because we just adopted them, our top four priorities for the 2023 session. And now, Michael, this doesn't mean that this is all counties care about, obviously, going into session, but these are the top four that are going to be on that one page that we walk around with to, to talk to legislators. Yeah, this is this is like uh, hot off the presses, right? This is the podcast equivalent of you know breaking news that we... We had the the Mako Legislative Committee met virtually today. This is this is the body that really is our principal decision making body at the Maryland Association of Counties. We have uh, elected officials from every jurisdiction participate in this group. They you know they guide positions through the legislative session, sort of bill by bill, and tell us what position to take and what issues to raise and those sorts of things. Um, we, we meet a few times out of the legislative session for updates and things like this, where adopting the framework of our top issues for the next legislative session, we cap off work that's been done through the spring, summer and fall, you know, getting getting to this point to sort of put the ball on the tee for the next legislative session. So we got that tied down today. It was good to see many of our friends, the folks who have put in an awful lot of time into the process this year and for most of them over the last four or eight years. So uh, good, good to see all of them uh, remotely, and um, and to get through get through a lot of the big issues worth talking about. All right. So for twenty twenty three, Mako is going to prioritize transparency, local decision making, public safety, and schools. And Michael, we get this question a lot. I think you got into it a little bit. But what is the process for selecting these four initiatives? You've been doing this a long time. I don't think the process has changed very much over the years. But this is member driven. These are driven by county elected officials and county professionals. Yeah, I, I think I think it works well for an organization like ours that has really broad and diverse membership that this should be bottom up, right? So, you know, in, in the springtime, it's actually it's almost embarrassing how soon we start the annual process after the General Assembly, you know, bangs the gavel, they drop the you know, they drop the confetti on a, on a Monday night at midnight, and it feels like it's only like six or eight weeks after that that we're sending something out to county governments, to all their governing bodies, to the elected officials, to our various professional affiliates and so forth. And we basically say, okay, let's like, you know, let's lick our wounds. Let's look at the things that we almost got or the things that we were interested in. What should be our top issues for the next legislative session? And then, you know, we'll get dozens of submissions every year. We always start this process with, you know, dozens and dozens of different ideas um, from teeny tiny stuff to gigantic issues. And we have a committee of uh, mostly elected officials who kind of work through this process of 
you know, what things on this list could we solve with a handshake rather than a bill? What things are maybe too local in nature for the statewide organization to make our top priorities? And you sift, you, I think this year we started with, I think it was 35 things on our first list. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, close, I mean, to, 30, close to 40. So I think 35, 36. We, we got a lot of them and we had to work through them, right, to be able to present them to right. the legislative subcommittee. So, yes, we, we had a lot of work. And I can attest to the fact that there's not much downtime between, you know, signing die and then getting into to looking ahead to the next session. So you're, you're right on the money there, Michael, for better or worse. Yeah. So and then then we have a subcommittee that sort of owns it from there. They guide the staff on where where do they want to have us do more research? Where should we start looking into how viable is this idea? Hey, this sounds like a good solution. Can we get this done? Like, you know, if it costs money, is that something that we think we might be able to get fiscal leadership behind? Um, If it's a matter of local authority, we should talk to the legislators or leaders who are on committees who would be hearing this subject matter and so sort of, you know, get a sense, hey, would this be a dead letter kind of idea or or is this a live one? That's us doing our proper homework in the summer and fall so we can get to a meeting like today's with a narrowed down list of let's focus on a short list. I mean, we have this provision in our bylaws that precedes me even uh, our bylaws say no more than four initiatives. So it's not a brochure with 75 things or or 18 different topics. No more than four. It's one sheet of paper, basically. One sheet of paper, walk around with that as this is the, this is the list of our top issues. And, and again, it doesn't mean that's all we're going to get involved in. That's going to be a recurring comment, too. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that serves us well to have the top four. And like you said, of course, many, many other issues touch county government. We see a lot of bills. That we need to weigh in on. But Michael, let's jump into these quickly. The, the first initiative here, I mentioned transparency. And what we're talking about is centralized resources for body-worn cameras. And this is not a new issue for our listeners of the podcast. We've talked about this a lot. And there are multiple issues here, Michael. So I'll set the stage and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you. But we know that state law will soon require body-worn cameras for all law enforcement officers but we also know that advancing this goal remains elusive. And Michael, there, there are, like I said, there are multiple issues. The first is, of course, the capital costs of acquiring the body cameras. You also have a lot of costs associated with storage and redaction. I mean, this is not like the old school, just use a black marker to, you know, to, to knock out some of the pieces of paper that you, that you need to redact. This is now an attorney watching every second of this video and having to decide whether or not something needs to be redacted. So that could be addresses or, you know, kids in the street, you don't want to show their faces. So there's a lot of time there. And then the storage is very expensive. But then Michael, we also have the issue of the public information law and how to handle digital footage. And quite frankly, the state has never closed the loop on this. I know there were work groups years ago that were supposed to say, hey, we're going to update the laws. We're going to figure this out. And I think we've still not been able to close that loop. We've seen multiple bills here, but we're going to take a big swing at this this year and try to, to try to address those multiple issues uh, moving forward. And I think that is something top of mind for every single county across the state. Yeah, I think I think that that setup is is just about right. Um, in 2021, a, a lot of our listeners will remember that that was a year where the state legislature really wanted to focus on new a new vision for oversight of police and law enforcement officers. And among the things in that bill, which really didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time, mostly because 
candidly, because those of us in local government didn't really raise cane over it, um, was a provision saying by the beginning of 2025, so, you know, around two years from now, by, or by the first of 2025, um, we want to have every officer suited with a body camera, you know, a body worn camera for our law enforcement officers. And so, I mean, there's, there's a good deal of evidence suggesting that putting cameras on officers and having smart policies for how they're used, when they need to be on and so forth, just adds a great deal of accountability and removes the, the, the doubt in these circumstances when bad things happen, when, when someone says, well, you know, the police officer was unfair to me, treated me poorly or, or said this thing, or I didn't do that or, or so forth. If you have a camera that can, that can reveal, you know, what, how things actually went down, that can reduce that uncertainty. I think a lot of, of folks in the law enforcement community welcome the advent of cameras of saying, see, this is what happened. This guy did this thing, and that's how things turned out the way they did. Regardless, the move is on toward body-worn cameras, adding footage as something that you can use if you're in an investigation or looking back on officer conduct or incidents and so forth. So that's happening anyway, and Maryland's going to say it's got to happen for everybody you know, even if you haven't been able to afford the system and so forth yet. So we're in the window to get this implemented in the last, in, in the next couple of years. And I, I think, you know, the two issues that you just raised are really what lies ahead of, I mean, the first is, I mean, on, on the surface, we represent the counties. So we have a number of large jurisdictions who have county police departments, and most of them have already adopted body camera programs. I'm not sure if they reach Every single officer, like the law says, they need to by date certain. But there's an awful lot of county police walking around with body cameras already. Um, it's probably most of our smaller counties who have sheriffs and their deputy when primary law enforcement, where this has yet to catch on and needs to in the next couple of years. But then there's all the municipal police department, you know, towns, some of them who are pro- relatively small towns. Um, this, this law applies to them too. So I think we're, we're brothers in arms with, with, with our, our, our friends at the Maryland Municipal League and with the chiefs and sheriffs, uh, who are basically saying it doesn't make sense to leave everybody to sort of invent their own wheel here. Right. I mean, for every single right. police department to go out and let a contract to buy the cameras and then, if you if you're going to have a vendor do storage of the data and so forth, and you're going to go do a a contract for that and so forth, it seems like there's an opportunity for some consolidation, maybe some some dollar savings on economies of scale. If you know if, if the state took the lead, whether it's through the state police or like the police training commission or even a new entity, basically said. Here's the, here are two or three different contracts that local governments could ride on. That's a common sort of thing. You know, we have a general contract, but it's open to anyone else who wants to use it. Or we'll just buy a whole bunch of cameras. Then if you want, we'll buy the cameras for you. Um, if you want to have the state-issued camera, then we all know how that works. We can have training on using these particular cameras via centralized sort of thing. Um, and then maybe even you, you have a single um, state agency or a vendor who serves as we'll store all this data securely on your behalf, or we'll even provide the staff to do that kind of redaction and management of the of the footage 
all that sort of stuff. It feels like having one central player could benefit an awful lot of locals who might want to opt in and just ride along. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we, we talk about the, you know, those, those master contracts and the ability for, for counties or municipalities to opt in. That's common practice. I think it does make a lot of sense here. We want to avoid the, the widespread duplication of effort, right? And, and like you said, it doesn't make sense for 157 municipalities and 24 counties to try and, and, and come up with their own policies here. So I think there is an opportunity to at least offer that, that, that statewide solution. And Michael, I, I know, you know, like in the past, when we've talked about this, we're trying to, to make sure that we get it right. And we're partnering with victims advocates here. We've done that consistently over the years when we talk about body cameras and the footage and how it's handled. So I think that's an important element to this too. And I'm sure we'll be working with a lot of those same advocates moving forward here. But the bottom line for this is I think Mako is looking to set the stage for a smooth rollout here of this critical technology. You mentioned the possible opt-in for a state and local partnership for equipment and services. And then of course, figuring out those balance rules for footage. But a big component will be, you know, checking back in with our partners here that we've worked with over the years, Michael, and, and, and partnering with them again to try and advance some meaningful legislation here. Yeah, I, I think I think the, the the piece that can get technical and complicated is this idea of the Public Information Act. So I don't think we want to give a full treatment to all the details, but the high-level version is we've got a lot of well-intended laws on the books that have been there for 50 years that are all written for pieces of paper that are sitting in a manila envelope, right? And so the, the Public Information Act is all written sort of on the assumption that someone walks up to a desk and says, I'd like a copy of of that report or that file or that sheet of paper. And so, you know, you, you bring out the file, you run some copies. If it ends up being, you know, a hundred pages or whatever, you charge somebody by the page or, Hey, this is only three pieces of paper. It's free or whatever. Like the laws are all written about that kind of presumption. And if, if, if hours and hours of footage, from each and every officer's camera for day after day after day in service, if all of those are sitting in on our, uh, in a file or you know in a computer someplace, and that's all public documents, they're all public information and can, can be requested in the same way. The process of giving people that that footage is just way more complicated than here's a photocopy or here it is, but we've, we've you know, magic markered out the person's name and social security number. You get the rest. Like we've seen that sort of thing too. Um, doing a proper redaction of video footage means, uh Oh, you know, the officer was talking to a confidential informant or we don't want to give that away. So we keep that segment out. Um, here's a segment where we're talking to witnesses or uh, the victims of the crime and so forth. And like, that's the kind of information you don't want that to get into the hands of the public. We don't want some jerk with a website saying, look at this. I've got some lurid photographs and, and video of these poor people who are victims of crime. The last thing we want to do is have a public information law that gives that person a new business. Right. So let's let's find some way to say. You know, if, if, if we're in the middle of court and where we're fighting over like the worst case scenario, right? A, a, a court case about police conduct, all this stuff is discoverable in the court case anyway. This is just about someone walks in the door and says, I want to see the stuff. Then, okay, if you're an interested party, yes. Um, but if you're not an interested party, they ought to have the right to basically either redact the footage appropriately or say, this isn't for public consumption. It's not that sort of thing. Right. Absolutely. And, and it is 
a big issue. It's a big issue for uh, across public safety when you get into even stuff like next gen nine one one. This is this is an issue. So as we go into the digital age, we have to continue to address these concerns, and hopefully, we can get something on the books that that does that equitably and across the board. So, Michael, going into our second initiative. This is adult use cannabis. Uh, we're talking here about revenue sharing and local opt-out authority. Michael, I don't think we're breaking any news to say that it's very, very likely that Maryland voters will approve question four, which is the cannabis legalization amendment on the November ballot. And what that would do was would be legalizing cannabis for adults 21 years of age or older beginning in July 2023. And it also directs the General Assembly to pass laws for the use, distribution, regulation, and taxation of marijuana. So, Michael, this is, I think, looking, looking, being forward looking a little bit uh, for MAKO and understanding this is going to be a major component of the 2023 session. So, there are a lot of issues here. And as I sort of mentioned before, counties are mostly concerned with two major pieces, Michael that is the taxation component and then the local decision making component, which is, hey, if we don't want to to have growers or you know sellers in our county, we should be able to opt out. Now, of course, you wouldn't be uh, subject to the second piece of that, which is the taxation. But I'll let you get into this a little bit more, Michael, and what we've seen in the past, past iterations of this bill, and what we're looking to do in the 2023 session. First of all, um, this isn't Mako taking a position on the ballot question that's before voters this fall. So in November, Maryland voters are going to get their say on whether we'd like to have state laws rewritten to conform with that general principle that 21-year-olds in Maryland ought to be able to use cannabis without state law being an interfering factor, right? So that's, that's the question for the people. We're not taking a position on that. We're in the weeds on the implementation. And we're working with the assumption that that's going to pass. Uh, shout out to a friend of the podcast, Dr. Cromer, and the, the Goucher poll suggesting that voters are awfully likely to, to pass this. Um, this notion has passed in lots of different states. When it gets on the ballot, voters in just about every jurisdiction end up passing it. So we anticipate that's what's going to happen in November. That means come January, the legislature has some real work to do to make this the, the new sort of oversight regime and deal with some social justice issues and business licensing issues and all these sorts of things. So that's where we have a role is where do the counties fit in to the new state laws on this. And I mean, you already hit the two main points. One is a, a bunch of states have done this. Like we don't have to forge new ground. And and other states have done this. I, I lost count. We're, we would be something like the 19th, are there 18 yeah. or 19 states who have already adopted adult use cannabis uh, by law in, in, in similar fashion. We've seen other states say, hey, if county or town don't want to have uh, dispensaries or sellers or what the term, whatever the term of art is going to be, then they don't need to house those activities. So if you don't want to have growers, you're worried about whatever, a public safety concern around the farms or the businesses, then you, know, you don't have to allow that either. We've seen other states say there's a local opt-out. And I think we'd want the same thing here that has happened and basically seems to be working fine in other states. So, you know, you look at the map in Colorado and a lot of Colorado, you can't grow and you can't buy. It's it's a bunch of other places where you can. And America thinks of Colorado as 
was one of those vanguard states that went out and legalized cannabis, even though lots of places opted out. It seems fine there. It will probably work fine here. And I think the idea of some individual counties saying we don't want the we don't want the sales happening here, I think it's possible. I don't think it would be most of the state, but it'd be a handful of places probably. Right. And, and, then, and like you said, yeah. I mean, most of the states that have done this have, have adopted that model. I know New York very similarly, they, they, they gave, you know, their local governments a time period to where they had to decide whether or not they wanted to opt in or out. So that that's again, and again, we've seen this in previous iterations of bills that have come through the general assembly. It's had that, that clause. So I don't think you're, you're, you're off base at all to say this is pretty standard practice in the way that we've seen this implemented in other states and proposed in Maryland. So, so what's the second piece here, the taxation piece, Michael? I know you love to talk about that. I love tax policy in general. I don't think this one is super complicated. Uh, as, as this product goes from being, you know, right now it's authorized in Maryland as a medicinal product and we don't tax medicines here. So you don't pay sales tax on a prescription drug. You don't, you don't pay sales tax on a variety of other things that are related to healthcare and so forth. So, um, similarly, um, if this goes to becoming a, an effectively a recreational product rather than a medicinal product, Product, it would presumably be subject to a tax. Now, it could be just as simple as the state will apply its usual sales tax. I think the smarter bet is that this will look similar to the way we have regulation and taxation of things like alcohol, right? It seems the obvious comparison where the state has a separately stated alcoholic beverages tax. Um, in the event we're going to have a separate uh, revenue stream to government from this newly legalized product. Uh, I think there's a reasonable argument that a good deal of the local implementation burden, whether that's planning and zoning or public safety or infrastructure or whatever, is going to be borne by local governments. And so we ought to be part of that tax regime, whatever it looks like. And I, I think Mako will sharpen our pencils and we'll be at the table, maybe expressing a preference of one flavor or another. But for the moment, it's just local governments ought to have a reasonable component of the new revenue regime. That's what we have in mind, whether it's a local option tax, like has been um, has been in Maryland bills that have been floated before, or whether it looks a little bit different or is modeled after a different state. I don't think we know yet, but we ought to be at that table. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, uh, lots of other states that have done this, there is that local component. So it does make a lot of sense. And I disagree with you. There is a it's very complicated and you can get into the weeds, no pun intended, on the tax policy here. And generally the, the, the policies surrounding cannabis and how to implement it, there's a safety issue here as well. So obviously a lot to work out, but I think MAKO will focus on those two tenants of this legislation and try to make sure that we're looking after counties and so that this can be implemented across the board in a, in a very good and successful way. If the voters, again, decide to do that, and like you mentioned before, MAKO is not advocating one way or the other here. We're just uh, assuming that Maryland voters will overwhelmingly approve uh, the question for in November. 70, 70, 30? Oh, yeah. Something oh, like yeah. That? Probably something like I, I, that. I, I might even go above 70, but I think at least you take, 70. You take the over on that? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think the over is like 69 and a half, and I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over. <laughs> Um, okay, so the, the number, we'll come back and, and check on that, but I'm going to take the over on the 69 and a half. The third uh, initiative here, Michael, another vexing issue that is um, it's one that cannot be solved by pulling any one lever. And that is, look, we are losing volunteer fires. We firefighters, excuse me, we're having a hard time recruiting them and retaining them. And that's a big problem, Michael, because we know that Maryland communities have always valued and relied upon their volunteer fire and rescue companies as either primary or complementary players. 
and emergency services. Um, unfortunately, we know that the combined fiscal and staffing pressures have many of these organizations on the brink of failure. Michael, we did take a good step forward. In the last session, we had an initiative to sort of address a funding component where, you know, Medicaid wasn't picking up the tab if a patient wasn't transported to a hospital, right? Okay. So if you go out and you you administer something on site, the, the ambulance, even in a, in a rural area where it's a long way to go, some of these volunteer companies weren't being reimbursed for that ride and, and doing really good things, um, going out into the communities and administering care. Now they're able to get reimbursed for that. But there still is this central problem, Michael, that we can't recruit and retain. And I don't know if this is a generational thing or what, but we need to take a step forward here. And what's the plan? Well, I, I think you're right that this is this is a broad issue. Right? This is not unique to Maryland. That that all parts of the United States are facing this, and and right, we're we're probably up against demographic and social issues. And but bottom line is, it's really hard to provide services in the way that we we have enjoyed for decades, and an awful lot of Maryland believe and and really hold dear that a volunteer fire company is sort of a foundation of your community. It's one of the things you build around that you clap for them at the parade. You want to go to their fundraiser. You, you know, you want to support the volunteer company and you, you, you're proud when a member of your family is part of the company and dedicates that person's time to, to, you know, defending and saving and, 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 and uh, you know, benefiting your neighbors. So I, I think this is worth an investment. It's worth trying to unravel. Now, What's it going to take to do? I, I don't think we know. So it, it's not like Mako showing up saying we've got the here's the answer. Here's our bulletproof bullseye answer for what it's going to take. Rather, I think we know we have a lot of stakeholders here. And this is one that is worth digging into and sort of kicking the tires on. Do we have other states that are ahead of us? Um, are others doing differently or, or more wisely or have more central resources than we do for, for a variety of things? There's, you know, there's some things you can do on behalf of the volunteer firefighters themselves, whether it's tax breaks or things like, um, like scholarship and assistance for the training requirements. Like it's, it's a lot more training today to become a, a certified firefighter, definitely to become an EMT. Than, than was the K-23 years ago. So there's a barrier to entry if we can help bring that down with with costs or waivers or scholarships um, or, or things like that. I think I think that's worth looking into. Uh, the idea that maybe we need to rethink what comes into and comes out of the statewide emergency services fund. Um, you know, maybe maybe that needs a look. Uh, maybe we need to look at things like closing cost incentives for volunteer firefighters who want to buy their first home. This is going to require some thinking outside the box a little bit to try and come up with some, you know, some incentives to make this proposition look attractive to a new wave of Marylanders. What that sets up for is our bill is going to be, let's get on board and work together on this. So we need people who are in and have been in volunteer companies um, we need folks who are involved in emergency services and their their training requirements and and the the professionalism that underlies all this kind of service. I think we we probably need a variety of stakeholders at the table to sort of sort this stuff through and put together you know put together a plan for how we can get from here to there. It's it's a tough road ahead, but I think this is worth tackling. We've got a lot of folks who care an awful lot about this, including some folks within our association's leadership. So 
So I think we're doing right by our members and by our local communities. Take this issue seriously. Let's get this on the track so we can come together with a big multi-stakeholder solution. No doubt about it. And I mean, you know, you, you went through a lot of the challenges, but you know, there, there may be a culture change here too. I mean, traditionally that the firehouse, the volunteer firehouse, I mean, was the, the central and focal point of the community, right? Everything was going on there, families, generations. It was sort of a rite of passage to you, you would go and volunteer and people hung around there. Uh, it was just really the place to be. And these days, that's that's just not the case as much as it used to be. And and I think maybe it's it's more of a case of look, we're seeing a, a reduction in civil service across the board. You can just look at election judges, right? We're having a lot of trouble recruiting and retaining election judges. So with the advent of new technology, people just have more things to do. There are more distractions, and younger people don't seem interested in in doing these types of things. So trying to reach younger people to, you know, incentivize them in some way, like you said, cutting some of the red tape, finding ways to to make this work, I think behooves all of us. So definitely we have experience here in in tackling a, a big, big problem, you know, a big issue. And I and I think you can look at the next gen 911 commission. And this was a few years ago, um, very similar path. Mako said, look, this is a huge issue. We need to bring everybody to the table. We need to get consensus. And I think that's the plan here, right? Very, very similar lines. We're going to ask for, I think, a broad commission with all kinds of representation. And they'll be tasked with coming up with recommendations that then we can turn around and take to the General Assembly with the blueprint for, for what to do here. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It's always good to have everybody at the table and then to be able to show up with a couple of reports in hand saying, hey, don't worry, uh, legislator A, legislator B, everybody has agreed. You don't have to go to all these various organizations and ask them what they think. Everybody already sat down and did the work. And legislators like that, Michael, when you bring them something that's sort of a, a final product and everybody signed off on. So that seems like a really good path here to solve what is, again, a, a very, very vexing issue across the country. I think that, I think that's the long and short of it. But uh, the the idea of digging in on this, I, I think, is timely and it, it's going to serve us well. We've got a lot of eager partners who really want to roll up the sleeves and get into it, and, and we should be among them. Okay, Michael. So we've gotten through three. Let's talk about the fourth here, and that is all about education spending. We love talking about the blueprint for Maryland, Michael. And what we're looking for here, I think, is some more transparency. And look, we've gone through the blueprint. We were there for every meeting, and we know that the phase-in of the Maryland blueprint has an advanced interest in more transparent reporting of sources, uses, and outcomes from education investments. This is all um, also compounded here, the, the, the sort of the issue with transparency and making sure we have more information. You know, federal relief and rescue funding really compounded the concern. And so let's say, you know, look, we have all this federal money at a school board and we are going to say, hey, we need more from the state or from the county. It would be nice to know, hey, well, what, where are you with your federal money? Have you gotten all, all that out the door yet? How much more is coming in? And sometimes that's hard to figure out. So we know the Blueprint's going to address some of that. And we know that the additional reporting um, and a series of inputs to the the Blueprint's oversight committee, um, they're going to have that data. And so with with that, we want to make sure I think that that data can flow down to partners like counties who are funding partners. And Michael, also, I, I, I also have always said that local elected officials really do have an obligation to explain to their constituents, you know, where these tax dollars are going, how they're being spent. 
And sometimes, you know, and I don't know if it's anyone's fault. It's just we don't have that level of reporting and we don't have uh, sort of that that transparency that it would be nice to be able to convey to constituents. So, Michael, that that's, I think, a decent setup. I know you're more into the weeds on this than me. This is sort of something that uh, you and Brianna have been working on a lot. So talk a little bit about more uh, of what we're looking to do here and how it ties in with the uh, blueprint and the new committee that's going to be responsible for oversight. So it goes without saying, especially if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, that Maryland was already in the midst of a transformational investment into public education. The, you know, what was the, the Kerwin commission that turned into, you know, the, the recommendations of that body then turned into legislation. And now, now I guess, you know, the blueprint for Maryland is the, the, is the term of art everybody wants to use instead of the Kerwin bill. But whatever you want to call it, the idea of over the course of the next decade, sort of, make massive new investments and and hold the schools to a higher standard and and accelerate the professionalism of the teaching profession and ask for the kids and ask more of the systems that are there to help the kids um this is a really big deal it's a it's going to be the fiscal issue that drives policy in Annapolis for the next decade and one of the tenets of this whole approach has been the last time Maryland made big revisions to school funding, it, it didn't have enough follow through with accountability and oversight. So we're going to remedy that and create a whole new sort of regime for making sure print dollars are going to blueprint functions and that we're seeing the things delivered on the ground, school by school, to the kids where they need them, and that we should be st- we should be marking outcomes. And are the are the teachers getting the extra training that we want them to get? Um, you know, are the students getting the wraparound services that we want to see pop up in these schools that have high density of poverty? Like, there's a whole checklist of things we want the new money to go for these new services, and let's make sure it's coming back in the results that we're looking for. So, with that as the cue. For- we are today. Um, things have gotten complicated. The last couple of years, we've had school counts have been probably artificially depressed because of because of a, a pandemic, and, and some kids have disappeared from the public school roles. That's been a tricky thing to manage, and we've sort of patched over school funding formulas for a couple of years. Where, in effect, we're kind of funding kids who aren't there on the assumption they're coming back. Um, and, and at the same time, because of the federal government responding to the pandemic and sending some money to local governments, but some money directly to school systems to provide, um, you know, s- safety and equipment and more training and other offerings, you know, in and around the school system. This issue of following the money is, I think, harder than ever. So that's what I think MAKO is responding to, in particular, the, 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 the time when the school system comes before the county government and they're not they're not accountable within the county government in the way that like our parks department is right the you know they're all employees of the county if the park director or the the, you know, the local you know board of um board of visitors for the for the local park system you know, make a proposal we want to spend extra money on this or that and so forth there's there's accountability right through the the county government that schools are different the, the state has a law on how much the, the counties need to fund. There's 
political discretion on going above and beyond that and that sort of thing. But the, the school budget doesn't show up in the same way that other entities do. This feels like there's an opportunity because of all these things happen, because of the big investments in the blueprint, because of all these federal funds that have made things harder to follow. Um, there's an opportunity for us to get on board this movement. And I think just give counties more light shown upon what's before them as they make investments. You know, like typical county puts more money into education than everything else in its budget put together. And so having a sense of where that's going and what's going to happen with it and what should we expect next year and eight years from now ought to be part of that conversation. So I don't think our idea here is is going to is like, let's create a whole new layer on top of what Annapolis is already doing. Rather, let's try and adapt some of the things that are happening to be helpful for the counties as well as for that state implementation board and for the general assembly who's asked for their own reports and things like that. Let's just piggyback on those efforts and make sure everybody understands that the county as the fiscal authority is part of that picture as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And again, to reiterate, I mean, uh, the, a huge component of the blueprint of the Kerwin plan was accountability. And so this is not something that Mako's coming up with. And I can see how people, uh, there could be some ruffled feathers. I can assure you, Mako's not trying to rewrite the book. Mako is not doing anything untoward. This is, you know, again, a big component of the blueprint. And I think, like you said, it, it, if we're going to have this data and there's going to be these new processes that the state is creating, let's find a way to make sure that that information flows down to funding partners so that everybody is on the same page here. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it does make sense to me, the timing here to say, to be at the table and say, hey, you know, we'd, we'd love to have this data. We want to make sure that the money's being spent effectively. We want to make sure that we're accountable to our constituents and we want to make sure that we're on track and we're doing the right thing. So all that makes sense to me, Michael. I think it'll be a good effort, a worthwhile effort moving forward. So, Michael, those are the top four. The the, the breaking news, again, uh, we just adopted these today. Our legislative committee signed off on them. Michael, there is a, a, a bit of a pro forma mention here. These won't be officially adopted, right, until our winter conference in January, right? So these are technically right now the, the four recommended uh, initiatives, but we'll get final sign off at the winter conference, correct? Right. And that's that's a function of for most jurisdictions, this is an election year. And so we, we didn't we don't want to be completely beholden to the legislative committee of 2022 for 2023. For the most part, members carry over year to year in, in every four years when we have the election year for most jurisdictions, we go through a special process to reaffirm in January. And I don't think there's anything on this list that's going to prove controversial with the newly elected officials from various jurisdictions. We can have a conversation about it, presumably adopt this slate and, and continue working on into the 23 session. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll finalize that stuff in January. And, and again, Michael, these are the top four, but our initiative subcommittee also talked about some other major issues that will be top of mind in the 2023 session. Uh, what comes to mind off the bat is affordable housing and infrastructure. And quick plug, we are going to, Mako is going to next week host an affordable housing symposium. This is a day long event. All kinds of stakeholders from all different areas and all different viewpoints will be there speaking. I'm really looking forward to this. We'll drop details for that in the show notes. But really, 
Uh, you shouldn't miss that if you care about these issues. And most people that listen to this podcast, I think, do. So don't miss that. But Michael, of course, infrastructure is going to be a big deal. And a lot of stuff that that you know was submitted to MAKO, we're certainly going to be at the table on. So this is not you know the end-all be-all for things for MAKO. We're going to be busy in the next session. And, and there were a number of issues that our legislative uh, initiative subcommittee had to work through to get to these top four. <laughs> Right. So so no doubt about that. Um, you know, an issue like our, our local jails are continually overwhelmed by by inmates who really need mental health care as opposed to simple incarceration. We don't have the capacity to really serve and house them appropriately. So are we going to continue on behalf of our local jails so they can deliver service properly and people can get the services they need, you bet we will, right? We're going to be at the table on that kind of issue. Even though it's not here, we'll we'll show up at the budget hearings. We'll, we'll be there for legislation that talks about those issues. Uh, you mentioned affordable housing. No doubt in my mind, we'll be present on, on a number of things there. Um, yeah, infrastructure, oh my gosh, how many things might we end up taking up there? Uh, we, we had a variety of requests that were related to public health issues, um, continuing work on the opioid crisis, um, a variety of other, um, you know, these sort of multiple pandemics and, and, and so forth. All these sort of public health issues, we, our public health infrastructure continues to deserve our support and attention. Uh, we still have uh, public officials who deserve protection from, you know, from, from being attacked for doing their job. I think we've got a long list of things that the counties still care about. So we, we launched four things up the flagpole and we'll walk around with a sheet of paper that have this list, this list of four, but we'll still take our position on 180 bills next year and have our hands full. I'm, I'm not worried about team Mako being, you know, twiddling thumbs in February for nothing to do. Yeah, that that I can guarantee you will not happen. So <laughs> busy, busy session ahead, Michael. Any closing thoughts from you before we wrap up? I think it's it just again, um this this is the work product of a lot of leaders in county government, uh, quite a number of whom are about to turn over. They're term limited or they ran for other office or they're not coming back for what, one reason or another. So a lot of folks have put a good deal of time and effort into this product. Um, the idea of steering the organization really serves us well to have this happen from the bottom up. So members from lots of different churches are on the legislative committee, serve on the initiative subcommittee, sort of dig through all this stuff and point us in what I would hope, you know, if you've been listening to all this stuff, I hope you come away feeling like, yeah, they got you know, like they, they they picked a good list of things to be tackling and to be focusing on. And we ought to go to Annapolis with a reasonable package of things to ask for and look for partners to work with and come out and, you know, we move the ball in the right direction on a lot of this stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Same here. And we will go ahead and leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. Of course, you can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter. And then, of course, you should read the Conduit Street blog. Tons and tons of content there updated daily. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.